0: This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David Cooley. Tonight and Saturday night, HBO presents a two-night, four-hour documentary called George Carlin's American Dream. It's perfect, thought-provoking, insightful, revelatory, and at times very funny. Which, for a study about a comedian's life and work, it had better be. Judd Apatow, a stand-up comedian-turned-film writer and director, already has made one stellar biography about a comic for HBO, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, in 2018. Now, he and co-director Michael Bonfiglio have made another, by following, in minute detail, a comedian's process, progress, and personal triumphs and demons. George Carlin's American Dream is astoundingly thorough in both the ground it covers and its approach. Archival sources, audio tapes, home movies, old TV show clips from Mike Douglas and Dinah Shore to Merv Griffin and Tony Orlando are plentiful and used well. Intimate details of George Carlin's personal life are revealed in old and new interviews with some of those who truly knew him best, his brother Patrick, his first wife Brenda, and his daughter Kelly. All of them look at George's life, and their own, with the objective honesty that George eventually brought to his stand-up act. And while we learn of George's abusive father and oppressive mother, and of George and Brenda's descent into drugs and alcoholism, respectively, we also learn about what drove George Carlin to keep developing and altering his approach to comedy. In audio tapes recorded for his autobiography, Last Words, Carlin explains his disdain for authority figures in almost clinically detached terms.
1: My own experience of authority is one of opposition to, not just questioning authority, but actively
2: opposing it and trying to undo what it had in mind. Everything that had rules and regulations, I managed to either get kicked out of or leave early on my own the choir, the altar boys, the Boy Scouts, summer camp, and schools.
0: The first half of this excellent HBO documentary follows George Carlin's many evolutionary stages, providing clear samples of each. Stage one arrives in 1957, when at age 18, young George joins the Air Force. He lands a part-time job as a disc jockey in Louisiana using the kind of on-air voice and persona he would later make fun of.
1: Eighteen minutes before five o'clock, and this is music from Carlin's Corner, and that ain't half of it. Thirty dollars in the Lucky License jackpot, a call going out soon. Coming up, Warren
0: Storm with Trouble.
3: I got trouble troubles, troubles.
0: He forms a two-man comedy team with Jack Burns, and they move to California. The duo breaks up after only a few months, but Carlin stays put, pursuing his interest in comedy. He's in the audience of a Lenny Bruce show on one of the nights Bruce gets arrested. And Carlin gets arrested too out of solidarity. His own onstage comedy, then, in nightclubs and on TV, is mainstream and conventional. Until suddenly it isn't, when he starts to introduce such counterculture concepts and characters as TV's obviously drugged out hippy dippy weatherman.
1: Radar picking up a line of thunder showers from Utica, New York, to Middletown. However, the radar is also picking up a squadron of Russian ICBMs. So <laughs> I wouldn't sweat the thunder showers. <laughs> tonight low, twenty-five degrees. Tomorrow's high. Whenever I get up.
0: Ah. As the '60s progresses, and Carlin decides to talk about issues more directly, he refocuses his energies. He starts booking appearances almost exclusively on college campuses where the students would be more receptive to his new material. His beard and his hair get longer, and his comedy routines get more topical. As when heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali's conscientious objection to the Vietnam War has him stripped of his title for several years before finally being allowed to step back into the ring. George Carlin, talking outdoors to a small college crowd, sees more than a little irony in that whole situation. Hey, they're letting Ali fight. He
1: happened to lose, but at least they're letting him work again, right? For three years, the cat couldn't work, Muhammad Ali. uh, And of course, he had an unusual job beating people up, you know. But the government wanted him to change jobs. The government wanted him to kill people. He said, no, that's where I draw the line. I'll beat him up, but I don't want to kill him, you know. And the government got spiteful. They
0: said, look, if you won't kill him, we won't let you beat him up. From there, George Carlin's comedy routines get more dense, more bold, and more obsessed with the poetry, meanings, and impact of language. All this leads to such uncensored comedy albums as Class Clown, put out, I learned in this documentary, by a record label owned by another groundbreaking comedian, Flip Wilson. That album includes his infamous Seven Dirty Words routine, which identifies and talks about the seven words you can't say on television. When New York radio station WBAI played parts of that routine, it was objected to by an outraged parent tuning in, leading to a court case pitting the FCC against the corporate owners of the radio station. It was a free speech case, FCC versus the Pacifica Foundation, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. The court voted in favor of the FCC in what basically was a blow against free speech. Carlin wasn't saying those words for shock value. He was talking about their usage and symbolism and why they had been given such power. Many young George Carlin listeners recognized the subtleties in the issue and the comedy routine, that the Supreme Court had not. And some of them grew up to also become comedians obsessed with words. One of those youngsters was Stephen Colbert, who later became a household name because of such self-created words as truthiness. He was a giant George Carlin fan. Is that he's the Beatles of comedy. At a certain point in his career, there's this huge shift. You know, he's doing the comedic version of Love Me Do for the first part of his career, and then suddenly he puts out the Comedic White Album. Another major George Carlin enthusiast was Jerry Seinfeld, who also, like Carlin, delighted in questioning the accepted norms around him and using precise language to do so. He personified that thing that
1: you see when you're young and you go, "That, that's it, that's the thing, that's the thing to be. And I wanted to be just like him, getting every word in the right spot. Uh, Because when he did it, it thrilled me, you know, and and I wanted to do that. I wanted that skill and
0: I've spent my life uh, pursuing it. The first night of George Carlin's American Dream follows his rise to stardom, his seven dirty words controversy, and his counterculture coronation as the very first guest host on the premiere episode of Saturday Night Live. It ends, though, with Carlin seemingly on the wane, no longer in touch or in vogue. But he was determined to change and rise again by being even truer to himself and his opinions. In part two of American Dream, and for the rest of his life, George Carlin did exactly that. George Carlin's American Dream premieres tonight and tomorrow night on HBO, with both parts available today on HBO Max. After a break, we're going to listen back to portions of two of Terry's interviews with George Carlin. This is Fresh Air.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org.
0: George Carlin was one of the more popular and influential comics to emerge from the 1960s counterculture. He died in 2008, the week after he had been named the recipient of the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Terry Gross spoke with George Carlin in 1990 and again in 2004. We'll hear excerpts from both interviews. When Terry spoke with him in 2004, they listened back to his 1972 recording of Carlin's comic monologue, Seven Dirty Words You Can Never Say on Television. Of course, we bleep the words that made this routine famous.
1: There are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to 7. They must really be bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. All of you over here, you seven.
2: Bad words.
1: That's what they told us they were, remember? That's a bad word. No No bad words. Bad thoughts. Bad intentions. And words. You know the seven, don't you, that you can't say on television? Shit, suck a mother, huh? Those are the heavy seven. Those are the ones that'll infect your soul, curve your spine, and keep the country from winning the war.
4: George Carlin, welcome to Fresh
2: Air. Thanks, Terry.
4: Can you talk about what led to this routine? Like what you were thinking about, how you wrote it?
2: Well, um, I don't uh, really know that there was a a eureka moment or anything like that. uh, What happened was I'd always held these attitudes. I've always been sort of anti-authoritarian, and I, I really don't like arbitrary rules and regulations that are essentially designed to get people in the habit of conforming and obeying authority blindly so I have always resisted that in my in my life as a child as an adolescent and as a young adult and so um, I held that attitude that was the that's the, the fertile ground for all of this um, secondly um, I have a, a strong interest in language that is in part genetic and part then fostered by my mother. Um, And uh, I have always taken great joy in uh, looking closer, more closely at language. So um, those things were in place. Uh, On these other things, uh, we get into the field of hypocrisy, where uh, you really cannot pin down why what these rules they want to enforce are. It's just impossible to say this is a blanket rule. You'll see some newspapers print F blank blank K. Some print F asterisk asterisk K. Some blank F uh, some put F blank blank blank. Some put the word bleep. Some put um, expletive deleted. So there's no there's no real consistent standard. It it it's not a science. Uh, it, it's it's a notion that they have and it's superstitious. These words have no power. We give them this power uh, by 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 refusing to be uh, free and easy with them. We give them great power over us. They they really in themselves have no power. It's the rest of the sentence that makes them either good or bad.
4: In your 1972 recording you talk about how it's perfectly okay to say don't prick your finger, but
2: mm-hmm. you can't say
4: "don't finger your blank." Yeah,
2: you can't reverse the two. You can't words.
4: reverse the two words. So comics work with the power of words, and mm-hmm. in, in a way, the fact that certain words are supposed to be taboo, as you point out, that yes. gives them power.
2: That's
3: right.
4: And that makes mm-hmm. those words more powerful for you when you want to mm-hmm. use them. So, do you feel like you've been able to work with the taboo nature of certain words, and you know, make that work in your
2: favor? Well, what uh, the, like the, like in
4: that classic routine?
2: Yeah. That is a, an, an interestingly uh, disguised way, and I don't mean you were trying to deceive me or anything, but it's in a disguised way of saying, well, uh, don't some people just use these for shock value? You get this phrase all the time from interviewers, shock value. Well, shock is, is a kind of a heightened form of surprise, and surprise is at the heart of comedy. So if you're using the word uh, in, in a way to, to heighten the impact of the sentence or or season the stew, they are, after all, great – uh, seasonings. Uh, there, there, are, there are sentences that, without the use of uh, hell or damn even, lose all their their impact. So they, they have a proper place in, in language. And in, in, uh, in, in my case, I just like them because they are real and they do have impact. They, they do make a difference in a sentence. But if you're using them for their own sake, that's probably kind of weak. If you're using them in some way that you feel enhances what you're doing and delivering that's another thing.
4: Did I, you did you ever expect that 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 comedy routine would be actually played on the radio hmm. and it would be part of a case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court and that it would become as as important and famous a case as it became.
2: Well, I knew that it wasn't out of the question that it may be maybe played on the radio um fm radio stations at that time and there were commercial ones who qualified as what was called underground radio and and an awful lot of um uh, uh liberties were taken with um, music too music that had very um i don't god i hate the words explicit and graphic but those are the words that would be used by someone to describe those kind of songs um those lyrics um, I knew there was a chance but of course you, you know no one ever sees other things coming that are unexpected and larger you know I just knew that I had done a piece that summed up my, my position very well and sort of had a nice it had a wonderful rhythmic uh, the, the reading of those seven words the way they were placed together had a magnificent kind of a jazz feeling uh, a, a rhythm that was just very natural and, and satisfying the way those, the, those syllables were placed together Together. And so I knew I had done something uh, that uh, was an, making an important point about the hypocrisy of all of this.
4: Before we get back to our 2004 interview with George Carlin, let's listen back to an excerpt from his 1990 Fresh Air interview in which we also talked about the court cases surrounding the broadcast of his seven dirty words routine. Did the judges in the various trials get the point, do you think?
1: Absolutely not. Uh, I, I don't think they even listened. I'm sure they didn't listen to the record to hear it in its fullest and best context. I'm sure they read portions of the transcript. Uh, it's, uh, it's in the interest, uh, I guess, of the white male religious corporate paramilitary state that we live in to control us. And uh, the FCC, of course, uh, has control only over broadcast media. And I guess they found a way to interpret that form of expression differently from the printed word and the spoken word. The uh, the argument, which I think is specious, uh, is that because this goes out into the home... Uh, that somehow it's going to injure someone morally if it it comes through the speaker. They don't take into account the fact that there is an on-off switch on every radio and there is a station selector knob for changing the station. The man who made the complaint, one of these moral commandos, a professional moralist who wants us to live his way, uh, sat in his car with his son and listened to the entire broadcast, and I assume they were not morally degraded in any way. I assume the the child has developed in a normal way in spite of listening to that routine. So where is the argument? I don't follow the damage. I don't see where the damage occurs in this language being used.
4: You know, Lenny Bruce always said that... Um, when when he was up on uh, obscenity charges, yeah. that, that he wished he could perform the material for the judges, you yeah. know, because they were hearing, you know, either reading transcriptions or they were hearing people quote the material. A cop
1: was doing his act. Oh, right, purely. that's it. Yeah,
4: yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, Bruce really felt, well, if they're going to get what it's about, they have to hear me do it. Did you sure. feel that way yourself?
1: Well, I feel that... Um, uh, the the thing was rigged to start with. you know. Uh-huh. I, mean, I think it, the outcome was inevitable. But surely it would have been uh, fairer to the process to listen to the recording. And the other thing about it is there was a warning given, there was a disclaimer given by the radio station saying that there'll be language on this next recording, which you may find offensive. Uh, there was the point made that it was in the context of speaking about uh, protected speech. And and certainly, there uh, in that case, that has to be uh, a redeeming artistic feature, which is one of the tests for obscenity. Of course, they didn't test it for obscenity. They called it indecency and got around the obscenity law in that manner.
4: George Carlin recorded in 1990. Let's get back to our 2004 interview with him. Do you remember how you were first exposed to four-letter words and what your reaction was when you first were?
2: Well, I was... Uh, I grew up in uh, part of New York City that's a very interesting neighborhood. I lived literally. My front door was across the street. I mean, literally in its, in its real sense here. Uh, literally across the street from Teachers College of Columbia University, and all around me to the uh, to the south, I had Columbia University Teachers College, Barnard College, uh, Juilliard School of Music was around the corner. The original location, Riverside Church, the twenty-three story interdenominational cathedral, the Gothic cathedral, was at the end of my street. Union Theological Seminary, the largest seminary in the world, of, of again, interdenominational clergy. And around the corner, the Jewish Theological Seminary, the largest Jewish seminary in the world. St. John the Divine was nearby, and... Grant's tomb. So it was a highly institutional neighborhood full of learning and serious people. Immediately to the north down the hill, we had the beginnings of Harlem. We called our our section White Harlem because we thought it sounded tough. But there were cross pollination between these two groups. I lived very close by Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and Dominicans on the one hand, and blacks on the other. And when you're in those neighborhoods at the border. My Ours was a little Irish enclave, just a little wedge-shaped Irish enclave in the middle of all that. Highly populated because we were quite fertile folks. A lot of kids, a lot of kids on the street. And when you live near the border between all black and all white, you don't have the attitudes that the people who are insulated and isolated in the center of those areas have. Those are, those are people who are not in contact day to day to day, day, day with the opposite. But we did have contact all the time. And when you're on the border between two cultures, you sort of learn to live together. You, you have a common code of the streets in this case. And so I heard my language from the realistic people in, in the neighborhood, my big brother for, for one, but his friends and then all of the tiers and strata of, of the, the brothers and sisters under him. Uh, You know, everybody you knew had three or four brothers and sisters, and and each of them were the same age as as your brothers and sisters. So it was kind of interesting, but that's where I got a realistic feel and, and look at the world.
0: George Carlin speaking to Terry Gross in 2004. After a break, we'll hear more of that conversation. And jazz critic Kevin Whitehead revisits another classic from the 60s, a recently reissued 1960 album by jazz drummer Max Roach. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. We're listening back to Terry's 2004 interview with comic George Carlin. An excellent new two-part documentary, George Carlin's American Dream, premieres on HBO and HBO Max this weekend. It chronicles Carlin's gradual evolution from family-friendly joke-teller to topical social commentator, bombarding his audience with bold observations and passionate expletives. And many of his chosen topics are as topical now as they were then.
1: Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine
2: months. After that, they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. No nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no head start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool you're
1: conservatives don't give a shit about you until you reach
2: military age. Then they think you are just fine, just what they've been looking for. Conservatives want live babies so they can raise them to be dead soldiers. Pro-life. They're not pro-life. You know what they are? They're anti-woman. Simple as it gets. Anti-woman. They don't like them.
0: Now back to Terry's interview with George Carlin. When we left off, he was talking about how he was first exposed to four-letter words as a kid.
4: Did language get you into trouble as a kid?
0: Well,
2: I, I because I liked uh, language, uh, as I was I saying, my grandfather wrote out all of the works of Shakespeare in his adult life longhand because of the joy it gave him. Those were his words. I do it for the joy it gives me. So that that gene was active in our family. So I had that as I described earlier. But um, I then started collecting exotic uh, combinations of curses that I heard in my neighborhood. I was probably 13 or 14 at the time. And there were guys who would put together a sentence in the heat of anger or in some uh, ornate descriptive uh, passage in, in, in something they were describing. And, and they would have an adjective or two, uh, and they self-hyphenated. They would have made up a form and, and tacked it onto some, uh, some noun that uh, it didn't really go with. And the rest of the sentence might have been some colorful verb that was, uh, again, very inventive uh, street language. And some of them were very colorful and exotic and Different. They weren't just flat out curses. So I heard these and, and I started writing them down. Uh, in another situation where I could tell you what they were, you'd understand a little better even what I mean. But I, I wrote them down and I had a little list of them. I had about 10 or 12 of them. There are a few I can still remember. But I I've had that in my wallet. And my mother was a snoop and uh, discovered things I had stolen that way and confronted me with them. But in this case, looking in my wallet, she found this list. And uh, I heard her—I came in one night, and I opened the door very slightly in the apartment on the second floor, and I heard her talking to my Uncle John, and she was worried about me anyway because I was kind of a—I was getting like a a loose— to be a loose cannon, kind of a adolescent, defying a, as you will and must. Then, um, and I heard her saying, "I think he may need a psychiatrist, John. I think we may <laughs> have to get a child psychologist for him," because she was telling him these these words and showing him this list. So, yeah, they got me in trouble that way, but at least it was a creative effort.
4: Although your mother was appalled finding this list mm-hmm. of, of street yeah. words in your wallet, you you earlier credited your mother
2: with oh, having yes. a love she of was,
4: language and helping yes. to instill it. In you, how did her love of language uh, express yeah. itself?
2: Well, f- and first of all, just to put it in perspective, the, um, the uh, portion of my life when my mother and I were at odds is when you're supposed to differentiate yourself from the adult, the parent of the other uh, sex. Uh, and I had no father present in the home, so this was a battle between my mother and me for my identity sort of to over-dramatize it. But she was wonderful and she was my hero she brought up two boys in the second world war uh, uh, in an advertising job she had and she had she stimulated that thing in me about language she would send me to the dictionary I mean that was that's pro forma in, in a lot of families I know that's that's what you do, but she would say, "Get the dictionary." I asked her once um uh, what peruse meant I said, "Ma, what's peruse?" She said, "Well, get the dictionary in here get let's get the dictionary so I'd look it up and she'd have me uh, use it in a sentence of my own, and uh, we'd talk about the root or the origin of it or and which definition was more useful and current and so forth and so the next day when I gave her her newspaper in the evening, it wasn't a a nightly custom, but sometimes I went and bought her a newspaper and she came home from work. I brought it in her bedroom and gave her the newspaper. And I said, here, Ma, I said, would you like to peruse this? And she said, well, uh, maybe I'll give it a cursory glance. (laughs) It was right back. It was right back to the dictionary. And, And another thing she would do with that newspaper, she'd be reading a columnist uh, someone who wrote well, and she would uh, call me into the room and say, "Look at this. Listen to these words. Look how that word cuts. It just just cuts through that sentence." And she would make. She would do all these sort of dramatic. Um, she ha- they had an effect on her, and she was able to transmit that to me through her. You, she was a person who employed a lot of melodramatic things in her life. She she should. She said, "I should have been on the stage, Joyce. Someday you must tell my story." <laughs> you know,
4: mm. why did you drop out of high school in ninth grade?
2: I could see that they weren't offering anything I really needed. I wasn't interested in merely having a credential. Um, And I knew I had the skills I needed, and all I needed to do was to – work hard on the english language and and these these skills i had sharpened them i had a very strong command of the language as it was uh, as as i was at that time and i knew how, that would develop further and i knew that i didn't really need all of that stuff that they offer, that they teach you, to do what I wanted to do. I was very self-interdirected uh, and very self, um, self-sufficient. I had a, an autonomy uh, in, in my heart that kept me uh, moving in my own path.
4: Did, did you know in ninth grade when you dropped out that you wanted to be a comic?
2: Oh, yeah, I I knew that in fifth grade. I wrote a little autobiography then. I said, I want to be a comedian or an impersonator or an announcer or an actor. And uh, I had a plan. The plan was radio first because there's no audience there present. You get away with more, be nervous. The nerves are different. Second step would be stand up comedy. And uh, once I was good enough at that, they'd have to let me in the movies like Danny Kay. That was my childhood (laughs) thought. I I thought it was a birthright. And I thought that that I had a path figured out. And the path worked that way. I just realized later I was a better comedian than I thought. And I could abandon the actor part.
4: Now, I know you made it onto radio before you became famous as a comic. What was your radio persona?
2: well I I was on a, uh, the first job I had was in a place Shreveport Louisiana which sounds like kind of a, uh, an easily ignored uh, place but it had nine stations uh, it was a hot radio market as they said and we were number one I had a 52 share <laughs> imagine that a 52 share in a nine station market in my afternoon show so it was top 40 but it wasn't as rigid as it as top 40 became it wasn't as, as it didn't sound like a you know like a robot time temperature and the label and the name of the artist you could be a little bit of a personality too so we played top 40 and I was a, a very I was only 18 it was great to be playing the very music that I was dancing to at night I, I mean, it was nice to go over to a girl in a situation like at a bar or something and say would you like me to play a song on the radio for you tomorrow <laughs> and dedicate it to you it was a little underhanded but it sure worked works a like a
4: charm and yeah. would you talk your way through the instrumental up to the vocal of the record
2: uh, some of the time, sure, yeah, use, uh, uh, you know, the first eight bars or 16 bars or whatever the instrumental intro was. You, you bring it up first for about three or four seconds, then you bring it down and say, okay, the new Connie Francis just came in, and I'm exaggerating my, my disc jockey <laughs> voice. And uh, here at 15 minutes past five on the George Carlin Show on KJO, we're going to listen to this brand new one and then whoo, up with the vocal, you know. <laughs> I loved running a tight board. We ran our own boards, and I loved, I was so proud of tight cues and, and segues that were tight, you know. It was just a point of pride.
4: Now, you've always opposed authority. I mean, you dropped out of Mm, school mm, in ninth grade. Yeah. You joined the military. You were court-martialed twice in the military.
2: Mm, Yeah, three times.
4: Three times, okay. Yes. Why would somebody who opposes authority so much volunteer to go into the military, which has such a hierarchical structure?
2: Mm, Yes. Uh, Well, at that time in in our history, there was a draft. And uh, the way you avoided the draft was to join. It's an odd thing. It sounds like a paradox, but it's true. The way you stayed out of the military was to choose when to go in, uh, not to let them decide. See, see, I wanted the choice to be mine. I didn't want to wait. New York, the... The draft pool was very large, and therefore you wouldn't be drafted until your early 20s, which would have interfered with my life plan. I had a little plan when I was 11 years old, and I was working through it in my teenage years. And I said, well, I'm not going to get to do this if they're going to draft me, all well, these other guys, are 20, 21. I joined at 17 to get what they called then get the military obligation out of the way.
4: And um, when you got in there— how did you do inside? You mentioned you were court-martialed three times. How did you respond to the authority within the military?
2: Uh, poorly to the authority. I was very good at the thing they trained me for, which was electronics and um computer, analog computers. Uh, there was a system called the K-System bomb system on the B-47, and I was trained in a very elite squadron, I'm proud to say. It's one of the few conceits I have about myself, but it is a genuine one. Uh, I qualified for a highly elite uh, school and uh, passed uh, with the highest T-score they'd ever had and, and therefore, but I loved it because of the theory involved. It was all blackboard. It was none of the screwdriver stuff. So when I got to my base to, to practice this uh, art, science, that they taught me, spent a lot of money on me, uh, they they right away they tell you pick this up, put it over there, put those here, and just take the I didn't care for that and I, uh, so I, I became a disc jockey in a downtown commercial station instead when I was eighteen, and I had already begun my career while I was getting my military out of the way, but I was a behavior problem there just as I was in school because I didn't accept arbitrary orders from people who I thought were possibly uh, were inferior.
4: Who were the first comics that you heard where you thought, they nailed it, this is what life is about? Like, they just described yeah. life.
2: Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I know the, 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 the gist of your question I can answer. Um, of course, comedy changed in the 1950s when the individuals uh, emerged and, and nobody was all the same anymore. It used to be very sane, very safe. And very same. And then Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, Nichols and May, and a lot of other people in the improv groups and some underground uh, press and so forth uh, took hold of um, comedy and changed it. And uh, so it was that crop. And in the 50s, I was then uh, approaching my uh, 20th birthday. And um, Lenny Bruce was, of course, the uh, the one who inspired me the most because I saw for the very first time utter and complete honesty on a stage. And it was a brilliant form of it. It wasn't just uh, honesty. It was, it was uh, great satire, even in his days of, of his just his parodies were great. But then he started talking about religion and things. And, and I thought, boy, that's, that's wonderful to know that you can do that, that it can be done. I didn't say, well, I'm going to do that too. But I, I sort of said, okay, th- now I know that. And it really did help me later to, to decide to be myself.
4: How much do you think your comedy has changed when you first, from when you first started doing stand-up?
2: Well, of course, the times uh, helped, uh, you know, the, the changes illustrated by the times. I, I began in 1960. I went through uh, about eight or nine years of uh, what essentially were the extended 1950s, sort of a button-down period. But that was when the country was changing. I was 30 in 1957. The people I was entertaining were in their 40s, and they were the parents of the people who were 20, 18 in college, changing, beginning to change the, the, the nature of, of our society to a great extent. So I sided more with them because I was anti-authoritary, uh, anti-authority, and I just let myself revert to my deferred adolescence and be one of them in, in terms of my work, rather than these people I really disliked who I was entertaining, these 40-year-old-plus people. So um, that, that's how my comedy has changed. It, the, the times were, were safer, and I was a safer mainstream comic in the 60s, and then I became this other person who was a little more honest and open with language and, and his thoughts. You know?
4: Were you uh, performing to older audiences because those were the people who could buy the t- tickets in the places well, that you were performing?
2: Uh, no, not not strictly speaking. Uh, what happened was this, and I, I can do this briefly for you. Um, I had always been this lawbreaker, outlaw-type kid and adolescent and Air Force guy, as you pointed out. Never stuck by the rules, always swimming against the tide. But I had a mainstream dream, and my dream was to be like Danny Kaye in the movies or to be like Bob (laughs) Hope in the movies. So I never put those two things together. I never saw that they didn't go together. (laughs) And I followed this other dream in the way that you did because the only way you could do it was to please people with mainstream safe comedy That's what the period demanded and and got. So I did that until the two became, it became an untenable situation. I couldn't, I could no longer be myself inside and serve these other things. And when I saw the, the mix, when I saw the mistake, I went about correcting it in a, in a in a slow and orderly manner. It Took about two or three years for my changes, as it were, to take place.
4: Well, George Carlin, I'd like to ask you to end our in, interview by reading the final piece in your oh, new sure. book. And the book is called "When okay. Will Jesus Bring the Pork Chops." And this piece is called "The Secret News." And you're welcome to say anything about writing it before you read it, or to just read it, whatever you prefer.
2: Uh, I have, I have a, a big file called News, and it has a lot of odd uh, news uh, formats, and one of them was this one called The Secret News. And this was actually written and designed to be on an album, maybe, the, a studio-type album where you could use sound effects and you were, you were simulating actual broadcasting. But it works this way, too, w- with the sound effects indicated verbally. I'll, I'll do that for you. It's called the secret news, and we hear a news ticker sound effect, and the announcer whispering, saying, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the secret news. And the news ticker gets louder, and he goes, shh, and the ticker lowers. Here's the secret news. All people are afraid. No one knows what they're doing. Everything is getting worse. Some people deserve to die. Your money is worthless. No one is properly dressed. At least one of your children will disappoint you. The system is rigged. Your house will never be completely clean. All teachers are incompetent. There are people who really dislike you. Nothing is as good as it seems. Things don't last. No one is paying attention. The country is dying. God doesn't care. Shh.
4: George Carlin, thank you so much for talking with us.
2: Sure, thank you. I always appreciate, and I'm not flattering here, an intelligent uh, interview, and, and thank you for that.
0: George Carlin, speaking to Terry Gross in 2004. George Carlin's American Dream, an outstanding new documentary by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio, premieres tonight and tomorrow night on HBO and is available now on the streaming service HBO Max. Coming up, Kevin Whitehead revisits We Insist, the newly reissued 1960 album by jazz drummer Max Roach. This is Fresh Air. Last month, Max Roach's 1960 album, We Insist, was reissued on CD. It also was named to the National Recording Registry, a roster of works deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Our jazz critic, Kevin Whitehead, says Roach's landmark album scores in all three categories.
5: Listen, whisper, listen, whisper. Say we're free. Rumors flying, must be lying. Can it really be? Can't believe it, can't believe it, but that's what they say. Slave no longer, slave no longer. This is freedom day. Freedom Day, it's Freedom Day Throw those shackling chains away Everybody that I see Says it's really true if free
6: Abbey Lincoln in 1960 singing Freedom Day. Oscar Brown Jr.'s lyric celebrates emancipation and maybe looks ahead to freedoms yet to be secured. The album We Insist, Max Roach's Freedom Now Suite, epitomizes African American jazz musicians' support for the burgeoning civil rights movement. No equivocating here, the timely cover photo depicts a lunch counter sit-in, and the album begins with a blunt rebuttal to dubious songs where black narrators pine for the Old South. Drive-A-Man presents a slave's-eye view of plantation living.
5: Get to work and root that stump. (smack) Driver man'll make you jump. (smack) Better make your hammer ring. (smack) Driver man'll start to swing. (smack) Ain't but two things on my mind. (smack) Driver man and quitting time.
6: Drummer and composer Max Roach gave that song a lopsided five-beat rhythm where that slammed-out extra beat in every bar suggests the endless drudgery of the work and the crack of the overseer's whip. Guest soloist here is the grand old man of the tenor saxophone, the normally elegant Coleman Hawkins, who catches that rough work-song spirit. Hawkins squeaked a couple of times in that solo. Normally, that'd call for a splice or a retake, but Hawkins said, Leave the squeaks in. A piece like this shouldn't be too perfect. Repeated mentions of quitting time and Oscar Brown Jr.'s lyric suggest a parallel to modern-day wage slavery. Max Roach's album, We Insist, cites history to illuminate current realities, and not just in the U.S. All Africa, builds to Abby Lincoln's shout-outs to various sub-Saharan peoples, some involved in their own liberation struggles. A pan-African percussion trio includes Nigeria's Olotunji and New York's Ray Mantia.
5: They say it began with a chant and a hum and a Black hand laid on a native drum, Bantu.
6: On the album's closing tune, a more limber five-beat rhythm calls back to the slave-era drive-a-man. The title, Tears for Johannesburg, connects it with the recent Sharpeville massacre of black protesters in apartheid South Africa. The horns are Booker Little on trumpet, Walter Benton on tenor sax, and Julian Priester on trombone. Part of this album's story is how it and Max Roach helped Abby Lincoln find her own voice as a socially aware singer and songwriter. We Insist is now officially a classic, but on first release, it attracted some negative reviews from folks who thought jazz should stay away from politics, as if political realities hadn't helped shape jazz all along, or as if black musicians' present-day lives were of no concern. short pieces for Max Roach and Abby Lincoln alone reassert the primacy of drums and the voice as political instruments potent enough to be suppressed on antebellum plantations. On We Insist, drums and voice, Oscar Brown Jr.'s pointed lyrics, and a band that amplifies their message, all insist on being heard.
0: Kevin Whitehead is the author of Play the Way You Feel, the essential guide to jazz stories on film. He reviewed the reissue of Max Roach's classic 1960 album, We Insist, Freedom Now Sweet. On Monday's show, novelist Emma Straub. Her new book, This Time Tomorrow, is about a 40-year-old woman who is floating through her life and worried about her beloved, ailing father. She wakes up from her birthday to find herself 16 again, back to the year 1996. Straub also owns Books Are Magic, an independent bookstore in Brooklyn, New York. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman and Julian Hertzfeld. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C. V. nesper For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley.